Hebrews chapter 11. I'm a little sad because normally I would take two weeks to do Hebrews chapter 11. I'd do one week on what is faith and another week on sort of the whole, what we call the hall of faith, which is the list of all these Old Testament characters and the idea of faith in their lives and what that looks like. I'm going to have to combine that together, so hang on. Uh, And then next week, I'm going to have to talk a little bit about chapter 12 and a little bit of chapter 13. And that's okay, because there are really like two primary things about living the life of faith that I think will um, be challenging, but I think are very important to consider if you would consider what it means to follow a crucified Savior, what it means to be a Christian, what that feels like. Um, Chapter 12 and chapter 13 each have... Uh, something that I want to make sure that we um, connect with. And then next semester, I've decided that I'm going to preach a series on gospel-driven relationships, which will involve sex, marriage, dating, um, and other things. Uh, lots, of, lots of stuff in the relationship area, and I think it's going to be good. I always like doing that series because I think in a lot of ways where the rubber meets the road um, with the gospel, and does it really connecting to your life, or is it really just some kind of ideas that you kind of toy around with in your head is particularly in the area of relationships. Does God have a right to tell you how to live with regard to relationships? Because if there's one message from the culture, it is this, that when it comes to your body and what you do with your body, nobody can tell you what to do. And the gospel comes in in a very countercultural way and says there's going to be a clash right at the basic, um, most basic part of your being if that's what you think. God, the Christian idea... Um, yeah, doesn't sit well with that. So we're going we're gonna to talk about it because I think it's, it's uh, always an important thing. But tonight, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11. And I really don't feel like I can read this whole chapter, okay? So I'm going to read some of it, and then as we go through this, I'm going to make mention of uh, some particular verses. But we're definitely going to read the first part of it. So if you have a Bible or you have that, that page that I handed out, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And I am, um, the, the passage that I'm reading uh, that's on the paper is the NIV. Um, part of that is because the New International Version, I think, really gets verse 1 wrong. And I think the way it gets verse 1 wrong has had a really um, bad effect on evangelical Christendom. And the ESV is better, but I'm going to make mention of the NIV because a lot of you, if you grew up in church, probably have been affected by this bad translation. So, here we go. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There is another translation, which I'm going to get into, but if you have my little handout, you'll see that. But we're gonna, I'm going to talk about that. So, skip down to verse 2. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered Cain, sorry, offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Jump down, down to verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And then he talks some about Noah, and jump down to verse 8, we'll pick up with Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. 
He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he, meaning Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself, Sarah herself, his wife, was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And he talks, uh, he goes on, we'll read a few more verses. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he, is, he has prepared a city for them. And it goes on, if you want to jump down um, a little bit more... Let's see where we'll get down to. Let's talk about Moses, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And it goes on and talks more about all that stuff. But jump down here, down to verse um, 32. We'll read that to the end of the chapter. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, uh, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves with holes and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's a lot of stuff. Let's pray and then we're gonna touch on some of this here. Lord, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for this precious portion. We pray that you would help us to understand better what faith is and why it matters. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I said, um, I, I think there's a lot of confusion about faith and what it is. It's one of those, 
topics where, you know, it's a word that we use in our regular discourse, talking with people. It's a word people in our culture who don't go to church use. Uh, and what, those kinds of words, sometimes people who are trying to figure out what the Bible means may uh, often import ideas of the culture into the Bible when they think about words. I think there are a lot of words like this, words like hope, words like sin, words like faith. The Bible often means something very different than the way we think of those words. Uh, when I think about the word faith, and I think about what people in our culture and many people in the church think about faith, I think that most people see faith as in contrast to reason. That faith is basically what you have to go on when your brain and your thinking can take you no farther. Even beyond that, some people would say that faith is sort of a temperament or some kind of ability to be gullible that some people have and other people don't have. And some people look down on faith and see it as a kind of weakness, uh, particularly a weak-mindedness. Other people admire faith and wish they had it, but they regard it as sort of part of your temperament or your physiological, physical, psychological makeup. And it's something for other people, but I just don't have faith. Do you think that's fair? It's the way people think. It's basically the, the ability to keep your head up. And, and it seems that some people have it and some people don't. And a lot of the people that don't have it regard the people who do have it as not really being in touch with reality. Okay? And so when you come to this idea of thinking about Christianity and the Bible says that you need to have faith, for a lot of people they say, well, why would I want to turn off my brain? Why, could I, why would I possibly want to be part of that? And, and often, you know, you, you know, you find people that are like, well, now that person is a Christian, but they also seem thoughtful. And I don't really know how those two go together because Christians seem to be people who don't think. And isn't that what it means to live by faith? It means, you know, no matter what reason is telling you, you just pretend it doesn't exist and sort of, you know, sort of block it out. And I know some people have that ability and I'm great for them, but I don't have it. Okay. Now, it might surprise you to know that in the first century, much of this same attitude existed. Do you know this? Um, in, in the early, early centuries, it was very similar kind of thing. People thought of faith uh, in the first century as something that was opposed to thinking and reason. But here, the Bible talks about faith, and what's interesting is the the translation of the NIV where it says faith is being sure of what we hope for or is the ESV who has the ESV it says faith is the assurance right yes now that ESV the assurance is a little better only because it's ambiguous but it's still probably unless you understand the Greek behind that word you probably think of faith still as a feeling the NIV definitely pushes you toward the idea that faith is a feeling. It says faith is being sure. Now, I don't know what, you know, so a lot of you grew up in churches. I grew up in really, you know, ninth grade is when I got kind of seriously thinking about Christianity, right? And I remember very early on in my Christian life being told to memorize Hebrews chapter 11, 1 as the definition of faith. Now, I think even if you properly translate it, it's not adequate as the total definition of what the Bible has to say about faith. That's not the purpose, okay? But beyond that, if you think of it, the definition of faith as being sure, 
then what do you, how do you explain the way you live most of the time, even those of you who consider yourselves Christians? Because sometimes you are sure, but sometimes you're not. Does that mean that you're jumping in and out of faith and non-faith? How do you make sense of that? And how do you, you, know, how do you think of yourself uh, when you're having doubts, if faith is being sure? Now, I think that there's a big problem with this translation because the word that's translated being sure or in the ESV translated assurance is not a subjective word at all. It's not a word that refers to a feeling at all. It's a word that refers to a title deed. It's a noun it's not a feeling word. It's a, it's a noun that refers to an objective title deed, a piece of paper that when you have it, you know that you own this property. This is what it means. Faith is this title deed. And you might say, well, okay, what's, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Hebrews chapter 11 is just that, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 have been building a long argument about how Christ is the priest that we really need. The high priest whose ministry is founded on better promises because his work doesn't just look forward to something that will happen, but he actually accomplished what was needed. All the sacrifices of animals and the blood of bulls and goats pointed us to our need, but it never dealt with our need. But Jesus comes as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he does the work that's needed. And chapter 11 says, and faith takes as its title deed the reality of what Jesus did. Faith, in other words, is not closing your eyes to reality and saying, I'm just going to you know, do one of these uh, you know, and pretend that all this bad stuff will just go away. That's not faith at all. Faith is seeing, knowing, holding this title deed that Jesus really did live and die in the place of sinners and having that reality break into every other thing that you think and feel. Faith is not a feeling, it's a belief in an objective reality, something real and tangible. Jesus really lived, he really died. And faith is the conviction that focuses on this reality. It's a belief in God's promises in spite of appearances. And this is exactly where the Hebrews are. You remember that they are people who have been following Jesus and now persecution, intense persecution, Many of them are going to die in the persecution of Nero that's coming. And the writer of the Hebrews writes this letter. He calls it a word of encouragement to them, a word of exhortation. And what he tells them is, you are God's children. In the very next chapter, he's going to tell them that even though you're suffering, that doesn't prove that God has abandoned you. It actually proves that you're a true child of God. And he says that because it's based on this fact that Jesus has lived and died in your place. Faith takes that to the bank and says, no matter what I see, I know that that's true. And rather than letting my circumstances determine what I can imagine God to be like, I take what God says and who he is, and I let that determine my circumstances. In other words, there are two interpretations to every event. 
if some boy asks you out and then he doesn't call you the next day and the next day and the next day, there really are two interpretations. Now, you might feel, ladies, that there's only one interpretation. He obviously doesn't like me. And that might be good news or it might be bad news. (laughs) That depends on the boy, right? But here's the thing. The boy might not call you because he really, really likes you and he doesn't want to come on too strong. And you have no way of knowing. I can give you example after example after example. There are two interpretations to most every event. And the problem often with the Christian life is we assume an interpretation based on our analysis. But what faith does is it says, no, there's more to be considered. I know that I'm suffering. But what I also need to remember is that Jesus lived and died as the priest that I need to reconcile me to God. And yes, I may be suffering, but that's not the only thing that I have to consider. It's not the only evidence that I have to ponder in thinking about who God is and what that means for me today. That's why I can say that faith is not seeing less, it is actually seeing more. So rather than thinking of faith as shutting your eyes, The Bible speaks of faith as opening your eyes to seeing things that you might otherwise leave out of your consideration. That's why in verse 3, it says, by faith we understand. Isn't that fascinating? A lot of people think faith is the opposite of understanding. Faith comes in when you don't understand, then you just trust in faith. But the Bible says, no, faith is a way of understanding. St. Augustine put it this way. Faith is unto knowledge. Faith is unto knowledge. In other words, you come to understand things when faith is allowed to speak into your considerations of what might be true. Now, the interesting thing is, really, a lot of the history of philosophy ever since the day of Descartes has been about doubt is unto knowledge. Augustine says, I believe in order to know. But Descartes comes along and says, no, a better, more solid way is to doubt everything that's doubtable until you can't doubt anymore, and then you'll have real confidence. And Nietzsche comes along and says, you didn't doubt enough, and thus you get postmodernism and the morass that we're in, intellectually, in so many ways. Now, I know that's a vast oversimplification, but there really is something about what Augustine said that is more in line with what the Bible has to say. Faith is unto knowledge. Faith is a way of understanding because faith is taking seriously God's word and what it says. So rather than thinking of faith as a leap in the dark, I think Kierkegaard was really wrong about this. If that's the way you understand him and if that's the way you think that faith is basically, I can't see so I'm just going to jump out there and I'm going to have faith. No, faith is standing on the promises of God And the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done breaks into the here and the now. That's faith. Faith knows things because it takes God's word as true. Now, as soon as I describe faith that way, maybe some of you are realizing, well, faith is not a plant that is native to the human heart. And it's not. Because when you take seriously what faith is, according to the Bible, you realize that faith is not something you can just produce on your own. It's not something you can just kind of wump up. It's a gift, which is precisely how the Bible talks about it. In the very next chapter, it's going to talk about Jesus as the author and perfecter 
of our faith. Faith is a gift. I like the way there's a French Bible scholar, Speak, I guess is how you would pronounce his name, who says this, Faith is a guarantee of the heavenly realities for which we hope. Not only does it render them certain for us, but it envisages them as rightfully belonging to us. He says, Faith takes possession by anticipation of these heavenly blessings, and it is a genuine commencement of the divine life with the guarantee of its everlasting permanence. Faith takes possession by anticipation. And if you look at this list of all these people, you see this is what they have in common. Do you remember this story? Um, You know, I mean, basically, Abraham takes, you know, there's this great story where Abraham and Lot are, um, you know, they have to divide at one point. They're in the promised land, but it's filled with all these other people um, who are their enemies. And there's one point at which, you know, their herdsmen are fighting with each other. And so Lot and Abraham decide that they have to, to, to separate. And there's this fascinating thing where basically, like, the land is filled with all these enemies, but Abraham sits down and he's like, okay, well, let's divide the land among us. <laughs> but it's like, wait, it's not your land. It's not your land. It's filled with enemies. But from Abraham's perspective, of course it's our land. God promised it to us. It's our land. Right? Um, who is, is it Jacob, the one who you know, basically buys the, the, the cave in the promised land? Or, is, or does Abraham do that too? I, I found, I, Abraham. Yeah, Abraham buys this cave basically to bury his family, but it's not his land. But he buys it because God's promised it to him. This is where my family is going to be buried, even though we don't live here. Right? And this is the imagery. Like, God's promise changes their perception of reality. They don't just look at the land and say, oh, it's filled with enemies. Hmm. Boy, it would really be great if we could live here, but, you know, it's filled with enemies. No, they look at the land and say, oh, yeah, it's filled with enemies. We're not shutting our eyes to that, but it's our land. God said so. Now, I'm not making comments about, you know, the Middle East and who should live where and all that. Forget, the, but I'm just saying this is the idea of what faith is. So when people that you know say that they're living by faith, what do they mean by that? Does it mean that they sort of like those water diviners where they have the weird little stick and they kind of walk around and try and figure out where water is? You remember those? People used to do that, you know. Um, Joseph Smith used to do that before he founded Mormonism. But um, the, people used to do that kind of thing. And... Um, is that faith? I mean, it, people like sort of walk around, they're like, you know, by faith, I think I should park here, you know? Um, or by faith, I know I should marry you. Really? God hadn't told me that. Um, is that what it means to live by faith? Do you ever be around people and they talk in a way like you feel like they have this mystical sort of inner like magic eight ball that just sort of directs them what they're supposed to do? Yeah. That's not what the Bible means by faith. It's not. What it means to live by faith is to live in a way that the objective reality that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, even you, controls what you think and what you do, what you hope for, and the way you think about the past. That's what it means to live by faith. The objective reality of the work of Christ, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, break in to your reality so that you can think about nothing without considering it through the grid of Jesus lived and died in my place. That's what it means to live by faith. And that's what the 
the Hebrews chapter 11 passage is all about. Now, there's one verse I want to make sure I say something about. It's verse 6, because I think this verse is often misunderstood. It says here, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I said faith is not something that you can wump up. Okay? It's not something you can create. It's a gift. Um, but you might take this verse and say, well, it seems here that it's saying that faith is a work. Or at least salvation is a work. That if you could wump up faith, then you believe in God and then he sort of grants you favor and rewards and blesses you. But here's what I want you to understand. A reward is not the same as a wage. When it says that God rewards those, they believe that God rewards those who seek him, what it's saying is you do need to have your heart that is suspicious and cynical toward God. You need to have it remade. And only God can do that. You do need that. But what that means is for you to go from a place of suspicion and even hatred towards God to a place of, I know that he will bless me if I come to him, is a supernatural work. And one that you need to pray for and pray for for your friends. Right? But a reward is very different than a wage. A reward is something that comes to you not because you worked for it. There's this great parable where Jesus talks about um, the, uh, this, this uh, landowner who basically hires people at different times of the day. Remember this story? We, we talked about it maybe last year when I was preaching on the parables. And that's kind of the image. Like There are people that work all day long. And, the, and the, the manager says, you know, here's your wage, and gives them the full day's wage. But then there's people that come later in the day and later in the day, and some people that come basically at the last hour of the day, and they get paid the same. They get paid the same. And the people that worked all day are all upset, and Jesus is like, you have no right to be upset. I have the, I have the right to pay people stuff they didn't earn. That's the heart of the gospel, is you get a reward that you didn't earn. But somebody earned it. That's what chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 are about. Jesus earned it. And he gives it to us. Now what does this mean? How, how, does, how does this work out? I, I would say it this way. Faith changes everything. Let's, a couple things about how you see this. First, see, this is one of the best passages for understanding how to read the Old Testament. The point of the Old Testament is to not lift up heroes or sort of turn these Old Testament stories like most children's Bibles do and most Sunday school curriculums do and most flannel board presentations do. Um, the point of the Bible stories are not sort of Hebrew versions of Aesop's fables. That's not the point. The point is God is faithful, his promise is true, and these people trusted in it. But we already said that faith is not something they earned or warmed up. It's not their temperament. It's not a feeling. It's a supernaturally given ability to believe that what God says is true. And these people lived that, right? 
the point of the Bible is not dare to be a Daniel. I mean, you, you try and read like we, that horrible hymn is in the Presbyterian hymnal. Have anybody ever sang, has anybody sang that song? Dare to be a Daniel. I don't even know how it goes, and I'm glad for that. But it's, but it's in our hymnal, for crying out loud, right? Not all hymns are good. You may think I like all hymns. There's some really bad hymns, and that's a really bad one. Dare to be a Daniel. No, the point of the Bible, the point, for instance, of David and Goliath is not that this little weakling managed to triumph over this terrible giant because, you know, he was so clever and if you just have enough pluck and you pick the right stone and you have it, get it just right. No, the point, and the story itself shows you this is the point. There are only a few verses devoted to the action of the story. There are like twice as many verses devoted to what David says in 1 Samuel 16. You can go look it up. And what it says, or maybe it's 17, what it says is, the God who delivered me from the lions and the bears will deliver me from this Philistine. David wants you to get the point. God is the one who delivered me. I'm not delivering me with this slingshot. But yet most people hear that story as, oh, it's sort of this fable like you hear in lots of cultures about the weak overcoming the strong and these invincible odds. No, that's not the point at all. The point is God is a faithful God. Now, you know, I don't have time to expand on all that, but that's a really important thing. And these are heroes of faith, not heroes of great moral character. Because, you know, the Hebrews that this stuff is written to, they know these stories. Oh, you may think of Moses as a great guy, but he did some really terrible stuff. At one point, God wanted to kill him, and he never did get to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. Right? Oh, you may think of Noah as a great guy, trusted God, and even when everybody thought he was crazy. Yeah, but then he got drunk and exposed his nakedness, whatever that means, to his, to his, you know, to his family. And it's one of those things where nobody really knows what the Hebrew means. It's obviously deeply shameful. Right? So none of these people are. I mean, Abraham, for crying out loud, you know, when he thought that the, you know, that the king was going to kill him to take his wife, said, "She's not my wife. She's my sister. So you can have her." right? And he did it again. I mean, these people were not morally upright, wonderful people that we should emulate. That's not the way to read the Bible. But notice this thing that they really talk about a lot here, the idea about being aliens and strangers. Look particularly at verse 13. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died, they did not, I mean, that sort of puts the lie to the idea that if you have enough faith, you know, you'll never get sick and you'll never be poor, which is just flat out crazy. Um, but he says they were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. I want to focus on this because I think this is one of the most difficult things for us to reckon with. To really believe that we are aliens and strangers on earth. And, and what that means, and it's not like this platonic thing, like the earth and physical reality is bad, and one day we just need to be free from it so we can be free-floating spirits. No, what it means is they're aliens and strangers on earth because the earth as it is right now is frustrated. Romans 8 says that because sin has entered the world, the creation is frustrated and it's groaning. And God's people are groaning. And yet the reality is, where you're living, where you're sitting right now, is the promised land. Do you know this? In the end of the book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth come down right here. 
So here's this weird reality you have to deal with as a Christian. Where you're living right now is the promised land. It's as good as gold that this is the promised land that God is going to make this world right. And yet it sure doesn't look like that. And it sure doesn't feel like that. And at the same time that you feel a sense of this is what we were made for, you know, I, I, I know that I was made to be physical, and there's pleasure, and I love, you know, I like having taste buds, and, you know, this world that God has made. I love that he made chocolate. I love that he made beautiful wives like mine. I, I love all this stuff, right? And yet there's a sense in which it doesn't fully satisfy because it's still frustrated and groaning. But this is where we live. And the question is, like, if you don't get that, if you don't understand that you're a stranger and an alien here, I think you put too much hope in what you can expect from this world. And when you do that, you are bound and determined. You are bound and determined to be terribly disappointed and maybe close your heart to God's beauty and to God's love. Because if you think about if you're trying to put more weight on the joy this world can give than it can possibly give you, it has to crack and break, right? In other words, one of the things about being a Christian is you know that this world right now does not need to bear the weight of giving you all the joy you were made for. You were made for joy that this world can never give you in its present frustrated state. And if you're a Christian, you can, uh, you, can, you can basically have patience even while you long for the city, you long for the day when everything will be made right, but you don't need it all right now. And that really changes everything. It means that you don't have to shut your heart to disappointment, but you also don't need to try to get suck all the life You know, just do it. No, you don't have to live that way. Because this isn't the end. This life isn't all there is. If your heart's broken, it's not your one shot at finding joy. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. But it doesn't bear the same weight. If it was your only child, if you only get one chance In some ways, you'll like sort of hole up in your room and not do anything because you're afraid you might blow it. That's what so many people live like, right? It's so tragic. But when you understand that this world is not all there is, it really sets you free. C.S. Lewis has this great um, place where he talks about this. Do you guys know this um, essay of his called Transposition and Other Addresses? It's not one of his, you know the idea because the whole Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the idea of the, the wardrobe um, is sort of based and Narnia is based on this idea, but he talked about it in this essay. And I, I put this quote of it, but I'm just going to read a little bit of it. He talks here about this longing for a far-off country. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. 
Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we, listen to this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we've never yet visited. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. That's what Christianity says, that you were made for something that will never be satisfied in this world, but nonetheless, it's real. And it can be seen and even begin to be experienced and enjoyed right now. And this is why the book of Hebrews doesn't just talk about the objective reality of Christ on the cross, but how that opens for us a way in. The book of Hebrews says we get inside this beauty. We're brought right into the holy of holies, to this place of intimate relationship with God. It's what we were always made for. And there's no use trying to deny it because it'll keep bubbling up to the surface in so many ways. And Hebrews is all about that. A couple concluding applications. What do you think faith is really about? I mean, don't you love how some people won these great victories, but some people were sawn in two? That's the story of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet was supposedly put inside a hollow log and sawn in half. And that was as much living by faith as winning great victories, which means that for a lot of us, we need to seriously redefine what we understand faith and what we understand faith to feel like. Um, and I think, guess a close corollary of that is, are you looking for present comfort or a heavenly city? Right? What is your faith in? What is your faith in? The answer to this question will tell a lot about your ability to weather trials. And that's why it's such an important topic for the writer of the Hebrews, because that's what's coming. Is your faith in what you can get right now, or is there something more? Faith does not define, but trust God's definitions. And this is where we go next week. We talk about Hebrews 12. God 
um, claims no better, maintains the right to define what it feels like to be a child of God. So if you want to read ahead, you can read chapter 12. And in chapter 13, he talks about how we're to go meet Christ outside the city gate, the place of shame, because he was crucified outside of the city gate. And all those who want to follow him need to meet him there. So where Hebrew says, like Hebrew says, the promises of God better define your reality because your experience is going to be, you're going to wonder if God really loves you like a child because of the way you experience suffering. And you're going to feel like you have to go be ashamed and meet him in a place of shame because following a crucified God will never be cool. And people will never say, oh man, great, awesome. And people won't want to sign up for that. And that'll make you wonder if you're on the wrong path. So it's so important that you understand faith is not a feeling. Because chapter 12 and chapter 13 are going to help you to understand that um, feelings are not very reliable. I mean, they reliably mislead, I guess. But that's a very hard thing to say in our culture, which basically romanticism is the worldview of our culture. That what you feel is what really matters. And the Bible says, well, you may want to rethink that. Let's pray together.